Well, Gruffalo, said the mouse, you see, everyone is afraid of me. But now my tummy's beginning to rumble, and my favorite food is Gruffalo Crumble. Gruffalo Crumble, the Gruffalo said, and quick as the wind, he turned and fled. All was quiet in the deep, dark wood. The mouse found a nut, and the nut was good. Welcome to A Thousand and One Good Nights, a new podcast about the stories behind bedtime stories. Turn the pages with two new dads, one a psychologist and one a book editor, as they try to understand the nighttime ritual of their foreseeable future. Hey, Ben. Hey, Nick. Let's talk about the Gruffalo. This is the book you you suggested. This book, and I had never heard of it before, so I promptly scurried off to the library and picked up a copy. Um, So, tell me why why the Gruffalo? This was a new one to me too, Um, and I think one of the reasons that I thought it would be interesting to talk about is because it revisits some of the structures that we've encountered in in these other books. In that it it has a character going off into the woods for for other people who like Nick and myself aren't familiar with it. It's a mouse that is just trying to enjoy a uh, quiet meal in the woods, and then a fox shows up, and then the looking to eat the mouse, and and then the mouse says, "Oh well, I'm on my way to meet the gruffalo," and the fox says, "What's a gruffalo?" and then the mouse begins describing this imaginary monster whose favorite meal is fox fox gets scared runs away and then the mouse continues through the woods encounters a snake an owl each time scares them off with the same tactic and then the mouse encounters encounters the gruffalo himself who also wants to eat the mouse and so then the mouse retraces his steps and he sort of flips the trick and he tells the gruffalo everyone in the woods is afraid of me and the Gruffalo can't believe it. And then he goes, watch. And so then he goes back through the woods and they encounter the, the owl and the snake and the fox. And each of each, each creature sees the Gruffalo and is terrified and runs away. And then at the very end, the mouse says, uh, see, everybody's scared of me. And uh, I'm on my way to have some Gruffalo crumble. And then the Gruffalo goes, Gruffalo crumble. Oh, I better get out of here. <laughs> so... So it's the, I feel like there's a number of books that are, that are like that, you know, whether it's the going on a bear hunt where you have to cross all these obstacles and then you retrace your steps and you have to encounter them all again. Um, or it's where the wild things are, where you start in the bedroom and then you go to the, the woods where the wild things are, some of whom bear kind of a striking resemblance to the Gruffalo. And then you retrace your steps and you end up back at the bedroom. So it's got that kind of format, but it's, I feel like it's because it has those familiar components. It's it's a pretty easy book to dis, to discuss, and it's a it's a enjoyable book to read. There's a lot of opportunity for accents and performance and things like that. So that's what attracted me to the book. Did you did you find the same the same things for you? Yeah, totally. It's a super easy, fun book to read, and the, like I like reading it. Um, my my daughters liked listening to it in part, I think, because it's got that it's got that repetition you know, that, that kids like so much, especially in kids books. Um, so I, yeah, I was totally 
pleasantly uh pleasantly surprised with this one um especially having never never heard of it before um yeah, so I, I, will, I will say this is a pleasant book but one thing that's kind of unpleasant and i've noticed that this is also typical of a lot of children's books children's book authors really seem to enjoy grotesque description i've just <laughs> i had forgotten uh just how many poisonous warts and prickly spines and orange eyes there, there tend to be how many monsters there really are in, in children's books did, did was that is that a surprise to you as a parent when you're revisiting board books did you remember a lot of monsters from your childhood like why why are there so many monsters mm. i can't say that i especially remember tons of like grotesque kind of disgusting humorously disgusting monsters um but to me it's i think it's pretty obvious why like why kids like them because it's hilarious like big green boogers and like weird warts and I, I i don't know i think there's something like i think kids maybe because kids constantly have big green boogers uh hanging out of their own right. noses right. um but my my kids love these little like micro disgusting descriptions um well so so that's that's interesting so you're kind of claiming that in some ways the things that are ostensibly supposed to make the gruffalo more terrible these you know these prickles and terrible teeth and his terrible jaws they're actually because kids have all kinds of grotesque things going on they actually make the gruffalo more approachable and less scary i don't know if they make them less scary i, I think part of it is just that kids maybe it's because they can relate to this stuff and maybe it's because as a kid lots of things that we take for granted right. look kind of grotesque and disproportionate and weird um but I think too, it's you, you can't. It's hard to tease this apart from the fact that, as a as a parent, when I read this, it that stuff is super fun to act out. You know, like you talk right. about, like, ew, look at that green wart on his nose, and right, and you do it in a way that allows the kids to to appreciate the disgustingness and maybe even scariness of it, but in a way that's kind of humorous and and safe too. Right. So it's or is it's not like and then the those terrible teeth ate the mouse <laughs> rent and bone from bone. It's more sort of focusing on the scare, you know, uh, the, on the caricatured, uh, grotesque character. And then it's that kind of, ew, that's not really terrified. It's, there's kind of, uh, there's, there's a level of delight <laughs> to, to, to right. it. Right. Well, and this is what, um, there's this great book called, I think maybe I've talked about a little bit about, it's called the uses of enchantment by, Br I think it's Bruno Bettelheim. He's this, um, kind of mid-century psychologist but he wrote this book about fairy tales and the the sort of psychological function of fairy tales among other things being it it allows kids to approach and explore things that are either terrifying or kind of off limits but to do it in, in like incrementally sort of safe ways so that eventually they can learn to sort of master their fears um and so the, I think this, obviously, the, this is kind of nodding at a lot of fairy tales, right? It's got the monster and the, the journey through the woods and all that kind of stuff. Um, right, yeah, and different different anthropomorphic creatures talking. Right. And, and also there's that sort of sense of uh, you in a lot of fairy tales, you're alone in a hostile world, usually the woods, um, and you've got to use your wits to trick the, the, the kind of the predators that mm. are out there. And that, that's all you have to you're you're kind of powerless because they're, you know, they're usually witches or goblins or trolls or something, you know, physically 
more imposing or powerful. So you've got to rely on your on your wits to 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 save you. And usually, oftentimes, by playing uh, playing on their own on monsters' own fears and you know playing these hostile entities against each other, which is what the the mouse does pretty successfully here. Um, and I think it's also it, it makes sense to me that you know as you say the the more you can show a thing sometimes the less fearful it is so even if there's tusks and uh, purple prickles that's less terrifying than the darkness beneath the bed where there's something might be visible you know like yeah. just like jaws was so effective because you never really saw the shark you just knew mm-hmm. and and then once you see something for what it is it's there's a, there's a ridiculousness to it some sometimes, like especially as as a child, because there's so you know you you flick on the lights and then what scared you was actually just a heap of clothes in the closet and you and you see things for what they are. As an adult, I, I get more and more scared of things that I do understand. <laughs> but <laughs> right, yeah, and this even the illustrations and th- this is common with a lot of children's book. You might you might have a scary sort of monster, but there are humorous elements to it, like scary monsters are almost always like pot bellied, right? They, right. they always have like a, a, a little like comical belly. And like on this one that his tongue sort of like hanging out the side of his mouth, it's sort of like a dog, like you would expect right. a dog, right? Um, and even, and I don't know. So I've got two versions of this, but on the board book version, the Gruffalo is depicted. He's kind of the way his eyebrows are arched. He, he looks genial. Yeah. Right. And there's, there's, <laughs> there's three butterflies flat kind of flapping around him. And so he doesn't, <laughs> that that takes away uh, the threatening aspect of him to a certain degree. Yeah, and and I think that that probably serves some sort of a function for kids, right? Is that things that seem scary, like in the beginning of the book, they're talking about the gruffalo, and so presumably kids are sort of imagining this. What is this like scary gruffalo thing? Um, but then when you encounter it, it is startling, and there are these like grotesque or kind of scary features. But there are also features that are kind of silly and ridiculous, too, right? So, so I think yeah. it kind of e- like eases kids into that idea of the things you imagine being scary often are not as they're handleable, right? They're not as scary, especially if you add in some uh, a little bit of cleverness, um, like the mouse does. Right. right. The mouse is very self-possessed, and and <laughs> it's, and that's the maybe the most interesting uh, moment in the book is it's it's very clear that. Uh, the mouse is inventing this imaginary gruffalo to scare the yeah. fox and the snake. And then for me, if, if I had done that and then I encountered <laughs> the very nightmare that I had been described, the, the worst possible thing that I can imagine. And so that, that would be, that would be a moment when I might lose my self possession. <laughs> right. This is, you know, I'd fabricate a nightmare and then it, and then it came true. And then it, then it stepped forth from the trees with that, goofy tongue hanging out its mouth. (laughs) (laughs) A mouse took a stroll through the deep dark wood. A fox saw the mouse, and the mouse looked good. Where are you going to, little brown mouse? Come and have lunch in my underground house. It's terribly kind of you, fox, but no, I'm going to have lunch with a gruffalo. A gruffalo? What's a gruffalo? A Gruffalo? Why didn't you know? He has terrible tusks and terrible claws and terrible teeth and his terrible jaws. Where are you meeting him? Here, by these rocks, and his favorite food is roasted fox. But the, the mouse, uh, 
so one, one thing that's that's interesting about that is the, the mouse says out loud when he sees the, the, the Gruffalo and it's in quotes, oh, help. Oh, no, it's a Gruffalo. I, I guess the, the mouse is saying that or is the narrator saying that? Who's saying that? Does, because that would seem to uh, betray the confident demeanor that the mouse has throughout the throughout the book that, he, that there's this moment of alarm. I was thinking I mean, about this. This is a really interesting question. Yeah. I, I my I almost wonder it seems pretty clear that this book is meant to be like a lot of newer kids books I think it's really it seems like it's designed from the outside to be performative yeah so I almost think this this isn't necessarily the mouse because the mouse gets a oh you know when it walks around the right. corner I think this is just this is for the parent or, or for the whoever's reading it right like oh help oh no. it's like it's like this kind of like, narrator like, like, or like, chorus or, like, or something right yeah and like and that kind of maybe and maybe you can say it with your kids exactly. almost as they get familiar with it and then you like what's gonna happen like ah <laughs> right which I think is a cool little like um, device like little literary device there um, and and I think like a neat. I imagine someone, you know, doing a history of children's literature in, you know, in 100 or 200 years. And, and I, I betcha a, a distinct, like, stage in the development of children's books is authors starting to write books for performance. Like, a re yeah. really obvious for, one for, is... For parents and, and, and their kids, and then also just the fact that now, like, one of the ways saying this lucrative, you, you become, when you write a children's book, you become sort of a professional storyteller, and so you're going around to libraries oh, yeah. and elementary schools, and so... It's, I mean, if you look at the Michael Rosen, the, the guy from going on a bear hunt, he was a performer first, Right. his performance of going on a bear hunt is very theatrical. There are all kinds of sound effects and things that he does as he hops around and, and, and brings, <laughs> brings the story to life. So, sorry, what, what, what were you going to say? No. Yeah. Um, I, it makes me think too of BJ Novak's, um, the book with no pictures, right? Have you? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, we'll have to do that one. Then. I, feel, I feel like that, that would be really fun. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, it seems pretty clear that this book is about, and I think that's about performance. And I think that's a really cool sort of newer development in it, not just children's books, but in sort of, uh, I don't know, bedtime storytelling and like interacting with your kids. Right. It's sort of like this. I don't know. It's not new. Necessarily, obviously, like people have been telling stories and doing interactive bedtimes for a while. But the fact that you can that books are being designed from the outset to be like maybe a bridge for parents who or, or storytellers who aren't as comfortable doing that stuff spontaneously to kind of get out of their shell and, and try more of that. And I guess that's the um, there's an understanding that, that parents are accustomed to that. And I think, you know, I like you, I encountered this after. I'd already been reading a lot of other children's books, and so I, I feel like I picked on that from the jump. And if this was the first book that you'd, like the first time you ever <laughs> read a, a book to a kid, do you think that it might be a little confusing oh, totally. to navigate totally. that, that kind of intertextual, like, uh, <laughs> one thing how, Kat and I love doing is when we have visitors come over and they're they're around dinner time and bedtime, is just... On, you know, putting them on the spot and having them read uh, kids' books to the girls. Right. <laughs> and if they're not used to it, it's it's really. Um, I mean, it's often funny, but it's but it really makes you realize, as a you know, as a reader of children's book, there are all these like skills and kind of routines that you get into. Um, right. And if it, nothing and if else, you just you practice reading out loud a lot, which most people, right. most adults, don't probably do very much. Um, 
So, and, and, and I think performing a book, even performing a kid's book is not some, most, most of the time when people, when we do this to people, they just read it pretty straight through. Um, right. Even something explicit like the, uh, the book with no pictures, it usually takes people, adults a while to like catch to on. To adjust. Yeah. Right. To like, you're supposed to be acting this out, not just like reading it line for line. Yeah. And even, and even when you do a book, uh, books are, these books are meant to be read over and over and over again. So even if you fumble it on the first time, your performance of the first are like, you, 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 you turn the page and you weren't prepared to, to act out whatever the action is the 15th or 16th time you're likely to get it. And and, 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 the, and the kid is also looking forward to that moment too. Right. Right. So and, this, go ahead. And, and the kid, the kid has also taught you because I, I feel like for me that, that was an adjustment too. the kid teaches you, which, mm. you know, you know, which like, the whole the whole book the, the cat in the hat for me for a long time it was just getting to that moment where the fish says no no like that's that's the that's the high point of the whole book and everything you know everything is leading up to that and the rest of the book is just sort of a come down from that moment where all of us shout <laughs> no no <laughs> in the Gibson household <laughs> right that's <laughs> funny um what do you so one thing that struck me I, I would firmly place this book in the category of um. A, a really good children's book and really fun, but maybe not a great children's book. Um, do, like, will this be, will this be a book that people are reading regularly in 30 years? Uh, I don't I know. This is kind of judgy on our part, but it, yeah, it is. I mean, I, I, I don't know. And what, because once again, we've sort of acknowledged that sometimes it's there's something mysterious and then you if, if a book is still doing well after 30 or 50 years like even if you wouldn't have predicted that pat the bunny at the time would be really the thing that speaks to everybody <laughs> somehow it is so maybe i mean i don't i'm not as uh uh touched it doesn't resonate with me in the same way that say like the, the giving tree or or some of these other books does i don't think it has and, and maybe it's not intended to have some of their complexity maybe the fact that you know things that are really good at their that really get a formula down i think tend to do well so in that sense maybe it has some staying power but it's not it, it doesn't have uh it, it doesn't have sort of the the deep mystery of some of the books we've talked about like the, where the wild things are there's like something almost primal about it mm -hmm. you know that, that, that defies description and so even if the gruffalo looks like one of the wild things this is this isn't that kind of story i, I would agree with you in that yeah and not that it has to be, you know, like right. I, I wouldn't want to be, I don't want to be reading where the wild things are in the giving tree night after night after night. <laughs> like, right. Like you need, you need some variety in there for sure. But I think this is a theme we talk a lot about is why do certain books kind of resonate so much? Um, and so it's, it's, it's just interesting to, to find books that are kind of like approach that level um, and think through what is it, what is it that's different or, or yeah, kind of distinct that separates those. Right. But uh, but but you'll keep it in the rotation for sure. <laughs> oh yeah, it's it's going in the rotation. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's uh, I mean I say that sometimes as if you had a choice <laughs> like about what what's it. <laughs> no, well, although this is uh, this is still a library book, we actually don't uh, okay. own a copy of it yet. But um, so it's still it's still in the trial period. We'll see. Okay, so let me let me ask you about that. Do, when you how does that work? Um, 
Sure. Like, do your kids understand that it's a library book? So, like, or is it they just keep asking, "Where's this Gruffalo?" After after it goes, is that how you decide on making a book purchase? After after the book goes back to the library, they say, "What happened to the Gruffalo?" Or we need the Gruffalo now? Or no. So by far, most of the books we have have been given to us. Um, proportionally, we don't get tons of books from the library. I don't, and actually, I don't know that we've ever gotten a book from the library where after the fact they said, "Hey, where's this? What happened to this book? What happened to the Gruffalo? What happened to?" Um, so I, but then again, our, I don't know, I feel like we have really, our library book choosing process is, uh, pretty awful. <laughs> we just go in and they just kind of run around and just grab stuff off the shelves. I will usually try to find a book that looks interesting to me. So we'll usually walk away with like three books, but maybe if somehow we were more systematic or, um, or smart about how we did, uh, how we did library trips, we'd, we'd come away with more winners, um, but but I think too they just have so many books, um, right? Already, but but Jack has a lot of books, but he definitely has books that he wants to hear over and over again. Even he will finish a book and then he'll want to hear it again immediately, and then the next day he wants to he remembered. Was there any were there any books that if you had to nominate the number one book that your kids seem to fixate on immediately, what would it be? Just the one that immediately made an impression, and, and you could just tell by the way that they or the next day. It was definitely still on their mind. What what would that be? Oh, I mean, Goldbug, um, <laughs> cars and trucks and things that go. <laughs> we call it Goldbug. Um, yeah, that one. I mean, the first time we read it, it was like <laughs> just like getting hit by a truck. <laughs> yeah, that's all they wanted to read. Like it, you know, forever. It seemed like. Um, I, I don't. I, this this book actually kind of reminded me of Cars and Trucks and Things That Go in the sense that, like we said, there's I wasn't always sure who was talking, and there's weird bits of italics and and, and things like that, and <laughs> and even that that oh no, help oh help oh no it's a gruffalo, right. just like in Cars and Trucks and Things That Go, it's like is that is is that Homer's who, who's is that Gold, but who who's talking here because it, it's all the text is kind of higgly piggly. So this is definitely more structured than Cars and Trucks and Things That Go, but the the dialogue there's an element of uh, chaos to the dialogue that reminds me of, of cars and trucks, which I think is an underappreciated, but really essential element to any good kid's book is that it's got a little like wild or chaos in it. That's, that's contained enough, but it's, it like comes out, you know, like I think that as a parent, but I think kids obviously really relate to that too. Um, that it is, it is, it's a crazy world. And, and they're, they're experiencing kind of a crazy world. <laughs> so yeah, there's stuff that doesn't make sense and seems right. arbitrary and just sort of random. And yeah, no, I, I think that's you. Does, does, does Jack ask for, do you guys do the library a lot? And if so, Honestly, does Jack? We don't. Uh, yeah. Well, and part of that is, uh, so we have, a, we have a lot of books that have been given to us as well. We do it sometimes, uh, and, but he is also really rough on books. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, you know, it's, if, if we do get library books, I, I feel like, uh, he's not at the age where we can kind of leave him alone with them. We, we've done some really, he's pretty respectful of library books that are almost nonfiction. There's kind of a loose narrative, but it's just about trains. So it's like a panorama. Oh, yeah. Here's a train going from the city to the country and there's not very many words. And then he can slowly turn the pages and, and, and that, that it kind of progresses and that it doesn't have in some ways that sense of chaos is I think honestly what, what the, he often de- destroys books because there's so much going on and he wants to flip back and forth with the pages and that's <laughs> right. how, that's how he, that's how he tears them. Like something, you know, he'll find Goldbug on one page and then he'll want to go back and check the other page or he'll, he'll get really excited. 
he'll, he'll, I'll, I'll try and turn a page too soon before he's done really mm. absorbing what's going on with it. And they'll go, no, 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 <laughs> we've got to, we've, <laughs> let's talk about that. And then I'm, I'm not as, uh, I'm not prepared for that. So I'm, I'm trying to just force my, the way I turn the page. <laughs> <laughs> Hey everyone, we hope you enjoyed this episode of A Thousand and One Good Nights. If you want to learn more about this book and other bedtime stories, check out our website at 1001goodnights.com. That's 1001goodnights.com. Be sure to sign up for our monthly email newsletter to get updates about upcoming seasons and other new content. Finally, Please help us out by rating the show on iTunes. This helps spread the word about the show and get it in front of new listeners each week.